Hey, somebody has run out on the field. Some goofball in a hat and a red shirt. Now he takes off the shirt. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's at the 30. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. Now he runs the opposite way. He runs at the 50. He runs at the 40. The guy is drunk, but there he goes. The 20, they're chasing him. They're not going to get him. Waving his arms, bare-chested. Somebody stop Look that out. man. Here comes the blue coat, Oh, Kevin. they got him. Here comes coming the blue from the coat. Oh, and they tackle him at the 40-yard line. I hope it was worth it, my friend, because you've got a night in the clink coming up. Timing is a lot, not everything, but probably a third of the success of companies. There were a lot of those 2 a.m. mornings where we learned more than we cared to know. And what I tell my own children and those that I mentor is places to go, somewhere to be, or stay right at home and leave tacky chores to me. Customer service guaranteed. I'm at your service. I'm Felicity. So that was my business card when I was 12. Yeah, I grew up in Oklahoma and lived in 21 states by the time I turned 21. So started moving on my own at 16. Hi, I'm Felicity Mormon. I stopped counting how old I am as soon as I had children, but I know I'm in my 40s and I'm living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And what's your company? The company that I co-founded is Stratus IoT, IoT for the Internet of Things, and uh, just about a decade old. So a couple of years there. What is Stratus IoT? So Stratus IoT is a category creator in the prop tech industry. And, you know, prop tech wasn't a thing when we kind of envisioned creating this. We really were focused on, at the time, sustainability. So you think back to 2013, we were kind of coming out of the Great Recession and with the economy stabilizing and the administration at the time, there was a push for some real attention to be shown to climate change at the time. And that put a lot of the missing opportunities in the spotlight around real estate and the primary building structure that had a massive footprint, but no attention to its sustainability to speak of was multifamily. So that's apartment buildings. And for me and my co-founder, it was just a really clear and obvious opportunity to serve, frankly, an industry that had long been tech neglected. So back in 2013, 2014, the phrase prop tech didn't exist, but sure enough, you know, timing is a lot, not everything, but probably a third of the success of companies in entrepreneurship. And certainly for prop tech, there was this massive movement towards addressing tech neglected buildings and multifamily was one of those. And that's what we were doing without that kind of nomenclature behind it and really caught in a wave of focus on opportunity around those buildings. So we started doing energy management. Think of smart thermostats inside of units that are collaboratively controlled between, at the time, resident and property owner to reduce energy costs and energy expenses with various incentives for doing so. Now also includes utilities. So it took us nearly a decade to deliver our original vision to include the utilities. Utilities, uh, there are something like 300 utilities here in the United States. And that's, that's a lot to wrangle, especially for entrepreneurs. So that initial focus of Stratus was really around energy. And now we do access management, water management, 
we still obviously focus on energy as a primary waste management of all things. And that leads to smart apartments and even smart Wi-Fi. So it really became a holistic building system over the course of, well, now that we have a global pandemic included over the course of about a hundred years. You keep saying prop tech. So I'm trying to figure out, does that mean property technology or something of that nature? That's exactly what it means. PropTech is technology that focuses on, again, fairly tech neglected spaces. So obviously in commercial real estate, big commercial, especially you have whole building systems. You have Johnson, Siemens, Schneider addressing these multi-million dollar budgets that need to regulate skyscrapers. So that makes sense that those have a solution in the marketplace, but buildings with budgets that are based on your net operating income instead of your square footage didn't have anything that was cost-effective to efficiently address their needs for building operations around technologies. And then something else happened that I didn't anticipate. So again, timing is a lot of the success of entrepreneurs, I found. And we happened to hit the market with the energy management system around the same time that the gig economy or the on-demand economy started picking up. And suddenly all of these apartment residents had anything that they needed at their fingertips. So if they want dinner delivered, are they going to go down to the bottom floor to meet that delivery person? Or are they going to ask the delivery person to deliver to the 13th floor and their door? And same thing with Amazon. Suddenly the Amazon deliveries to these spaces are picking up 20, 30, 50, 60% during the pandemic. And nobody built apartment buildings to manage that. Who could have anticipated? Well, I guess Jeff Bezos could, Uh, but the rest of us are trying to manage all of these deliveries, whether it's packages or people, even guests. Multifamily property managers became concierge services almost overnight. When you think about maybe 18 to 24 months, of the shift to the gig economy and companies like anything you need, dog walkers, flower deliveries, cleaners. And these are not in multifamily spaces for only the very elite. This is the apartment building next door. This is a massive number of buildings, tens of thousands of buildings, and they did not have any systems in place, no technology. So our goal was to retrofit those buildings to meet the needs of those property managers. And we had to do so cost-effectively Because unlike single family real estate, the net operating income of the building determines the valuation and not the square footage. So it's a very different value proposition than I'd ever worked with in single family or in commercial. But I was fortunate to have a mentor very early on explain to me what the value proposition of PropTech would be. And we modeled around that every single day. Okay. And just to be clear, so everyone understands. So at first you're saying your company kind of worked with HVAC and was working with the technology for these multifamily properties with that. But now you kind of fast forwarded to what you've done over the last year or two. You had to focus on technology, on having access to like these apartment buildings for people to come in and deliver. So it's still technology, but it's just been added on to maybe your original thing, which was, I guess, getting the HVAC technology in play. Is, Is that correct? That's exactly right. It really, Stratus evolved and the name change reflects that. We started as Stratus EMS. So the Strategic Implementation and Support of Energy Management Systems, 
not super exciting. It's much better that you went with the acronym kind of like, <laughs> I think everyone understands. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and that's also why Stratus is not spelled like the cloud. That's why it's spelled specifically S-T-R-A-T-I-S because it is that, that acronym. And then we moved that to Internet of Things, IOT. As soon as we realized what we'd created as a platform would serve far beyond just energy, despite our own passion and our goal of legacy around a reduction of carbon footprints, there's so much more that we could offer. And if we could get in the door, literally, if you will, sorry, that was bad and funny. Um, if we could get in the door with this really supremely needed offering around door locks and access to units and to package management rooms and to the gym and the front door, all of these different spaces on one mobile application, we would reduce the costs of the property managers with efficiencies. And that was our Trojan horse in to all of these other things that we could offer. So once you build a relationship with that property management company, they like to know what else you can do. Like, oh, this worked. What else do you have? We doubled our revenue seven years until COVID. COVID, because we couldn't get into people's units appropriately, we needed to do only new development, so new construction. And that slowed us down a little bit. Obviously, everybody was also trying to figure out what budget to prioritize where, which was smart. But until that year, as a primarily bootstrap startup, we took some funding from strategic partners. But to 2020, the scale was surprising. It was our goal. But to meet the goal, you know, you think you're doing a stretch goal and you find out uh, maybe you underestimated what your team could deliver. So what did you make in like revenue your first year versus the end of 2019 before the pandemic? I think our first year was about a million dollars. We had not done a million dollars in a year in any of the technology businesses that I'd done at that point. That was a big number to open up. And so it was a real opportunity to talk to people about the broader platform, not the technology platform, but the platform of prop tech. And that's why that industry took off because you see this pent up need. And if you're willing to serve this industry specifically, we focused those first six years on multifamily. So again, apartment buildings only, and they had a lot of pent up need. And if you could meet that need and you were willing to serve these fairly constrained budgets, you could have a lot of volume. <laughs> you got to be careful and not have so much volume that it has a negative impact on margin, but it was a balancing act. Really, I think most of our success came from balancing, serving, and delivering at that scale, at that pace. And what was your 2019 revenue? And then I want to jump back to 2013, if that's okay, but just to give us a scale of how big you've grown kind of since then. Yeah. So I've been acquired, so we don't actually discuss those numbers now. Sorry. Even before being acquired? We got acquired pretty quickly. Okay. So at least over 10 million, because if you said you doubled every year ever since 2013. Yep. Okay. I mean, I just need some perspective. Well, how about employees that you had the first year up till, let's say, 2019? Oh my gosh. It started my co-founder and I. So that was hard. I remember he was answering support phone calls at three in the morning. We we retrofitted a, a multifamily building, 250 units. And when you retrofit something, you're coming in to technology often that already exists on the property. And so unbeknownst to us, all of the door locks, when they were installed and 250 residents, right? 
So all of the door locks that had been installed had been set at that time years ago with an expiration date of Saturday at midnight of this day. And so all of the sudden at midnight, and it wasn't midnight because this was in the Midwest. So for us, it was two in the morning, two in the morning on a Saturday night, we start getting phone calls. If one person can do support for an organization, clearly things were working well, but not this day. So my co-founder starts taking these phone calls and we trying to diagnose remotely what is going on that all of a sudden, all of the door locks are stopped working. Sure enough, got into the system, read a door lock, and it had been programmed as they all had been with an expiration date. Who knows what happened at the install that that was, maybe it was just an oversight, but there were a lot of those 2 a.m. mornings where we learned more than we cared to know. You know, when it comes to your next business read, you do have options. You could pick up that trendy new buzzwordy business book, or you could learn the timeless buzzword free lessons of a straightforward modern classic. I'm talking about Good Profit by Charles Koch, a CEO with a real world track record of decade upon decade of actual exponential business growth. Want the lessons from someone who's actually done it? Start by visiting goodprofitbook.com. That's goodprofitbook.com. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster. And it's free. There's nothing better than making the right hire. And the faster you make the right hire, the faster you can get back to listening to this very podcast. Create a free job host in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Did you know every week, Nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn. Host your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. But in 2013, so it was just two of y'all. And then how many in 2019, how many employees? So 2019, I think we exited with about 100. And since then, after the acquisition and consolidation of teams, collaboration amongst groups, I think we're 300 right now. So that was 2020 growth. Nice. Well, congratulations and look Thank forward you. to hearing the stories, especially kind of one you had just mentioned. Again, just to make it clear before we roll back to even how you got started. So did you start off with locks? Because you said HVAC originally, and then now it sounds like locks. Was it one or the other? Because I think that just helps us understand how you grew, I guess, through time. Yeah, no, we started with thermostats, but nobody calls because their thermostat locked them out. <laughs> so yeah, so thermostats were easy. And the people that you were saving money are the actual people who own the apartments, right? Because whenever they're building into the rent, especially the newer ones, it seems like at least when I was in Gainesville, I remember they would include AC or electricity. So I know kids would like have it at 65 all day and not give a shit. And I really thought about it. I'm like, dude, that's just bad for the environment. You know, I understand it, is. it made no sense. So is that what you're actually saving the apartment owner's money? Because there's no reason for those kids to have it at 65 when they could probably have it at 75 and 
feel as comfortable, it seems like. It's even worse than that. A lot of these buildings in the Northeast hadn't had thermostatic control prior. So the methodology for controlling temperature was to open the windows on the top floors to cool when the heat from the rest of the building is rising. So it was heating and cooling. And to your point, a lot of these buildings were all inclusive. They'd never had individual submeters put on these units. And so the actual owner was incurring all of these costs. And for no reason except that there was no collaboration and there was no incentive for the students or one of our first buildings was senior housing. Most of those people had never, literally had never used a thermostat because they lived in these older buildings in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey. And so it was really eye-opening. But yeah, we certainly, our first focus was the energy efficiencies and cost savings in a positive, comfortable way for these owners who had relatively archaic systems. If you go to an old hotel and they have a radiator, that's what we're talking about. If you go to a hotel that has a PTAC, one of those systems on the wall that makes all the racket, like these are the systems that they used to use in apartments. And to switch out those entire systems often does not have cost-effective path. And that's what we were seeing. If we could add a thermostat and add thermostatic controls to these older systems via retrofit for a cost-effective sum of money, a capital expenditure, so an initial investment, we could save money. We could often do a return of investment in certainly less than two years. That was profound, especially as energy costs were starting to rise. All right. So is there anything else that we should know before we reel it back to how you got into this? Uh, well, the industry is continuing to evolve very rapidly. We're seeing a lot of entries into the marketplace at this point. But I have noticed something, and this is really interesting for, I hope, generally for entrepreneurs. And that is that there was a time in entrepreneurship where being first to market often led that company to be the category creator and hold the market at as much as 76% market share. Now, what we're seeing is that the inventor and the creator of even a market can be usurped by a flood of venture capital. So that's something that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about because I prefer to be absolutely frank. I prefer to bootstrap companies and come at success through my own finances or that of a partner or a strategic partner, somebody who has skin in the game with me for the success of my company and not merely a times 10 payout. And so now I'm thinking as an entrepreneur, because inevitably, you know, you do this again and again, you don't do it once. But now I'm looking at this and I'm just saying, can a bootstrap startup compete in a venture capital world and maintain their category without that kind of dumb money? I'm talking the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that the big dogs put in. So that's my big question that I'm dealing with right now as I consider what's next for myself as an entrepreneur. And I would consider I used to be very pro bootstrap. And now I'm wondering, is that the right advice to give to my mentees and those with whom I work in startups? So that's my big wonder. So we'll have the big answer by the end of this interview, huh? Let me tell you, if you got it, share it. Curious. So <laughs> were you first to market then? Is that what you're saying with your kind of prop tech, as we call it? Yeah, this was an invention. I'm good with business models, but my co-founder is a deep, deep wireless technologist, both in hardware and software. And who's your co-founder? My co-founder is Ryan Bookert. 
And we got to say thanks to him because he spent a lot of time getting us set up for this awesome interview with the audio quality. I got to tell you, also a sound guru. Can't go wrong. All co-founders should be sound gurus. So you were first to market, you're saying in this, but it seems like things worked out, but maybe that's why you took on capital, you're saying, because you were like, you were bootstrapped up till a year ago and you're like, hey, these other companies are coming in the market and I need to take money in order to make sure I don't get swallowed up by them. Yeah, it really shifted my perspective. Like when I hear about a competitor raising $10 million, that doesn't intimidate me. $100 million, if you still have to build your technology out, you're just going to be a good storyteller in the marketplace, not a delivery organization. When you get to hundreds of millions of dollars against a bootstrapped technology company, that's when I looked at this market and thought it's going to take more to compete than just gumption. <laughs> We're going to have to put some cash behind this now. Uh, but it was an eye opener for me. You know, it really did shift my mentality on bootstrapping and entrepreneurship. I had never been a backed organization. I'd always bootstrapped all of my life. And some companies are easier to bootstrap than others. This was my first software company and software is a different animal, but now I'm looking at it and I'm seeing at which inflection point could an infusion of capital both have been the right move at the right time and also offered enough boost to be worth the loss of equity because capital isn't free. <laughs> like when you take on your strategic partners and they have skin in the game, you're both looking at the same goals very clearly. And those goals are the delivery of the technology, not necessarily a delivery of a multiplier on the investment. Of course, that would be great, but they're also using the technology in a very meaningful way to them. So they're winning by investing just the investment alone because the technology is delivered. So that really shifted for me. That's we exited in 2020, specifically around the acknowledgement that this was going to need bigger investment than the streets were providing at the time, especially at the beginning of a global pandemic. The any of us who lived entrepreneurs who lived through 2008 2009 know how long an economic recovery can take. And it certainly added to my own personal risk aversion at that time, because I'd been an entrepreneur in 2008. And I saw that 18 months wasn't enough time to hold out. It took 36 months to really begin moving forward again from the beginning of that, from a real estate perspective. The rest of the country was a little bit further behind real estate's collapse. But I was like 36 months with no installs would be impossible as a bootstrap startup. It, it just would not be possible to survive that with 100 employees. And I wasn't willing to miss a payroll. You know, I wasn't willing to ask that of my team that delivered so much every day. Like they didn't deserve that. So I guess my input would be like you're wondering, especially you're saying with a technology company or kind of software company, yeah, after a few years, you might have to take money, right? But, you know, if I'm starting a lawn business and my goal is just to make a couple hundred K a year in a you know, small business, I don't think I need to take on capital. So I guess it kind of depends industry to industry. And you said this was the first time you've done something with software. I don't know if it was the first time technology too, but yeah, it would seem like maybe after a few years, you'd have to take on funding to compete, even if you were the first to market. Is that kind of what your thought process is? Yeah, I think that that's right. I do think though, I think you're dead on. If you're going to be in the services industry, rarely would I see a need if you're running a focused business to actually pull in investors. But for technology, and this is the second technology company, the first was focused on hardware. And we have a saying in technology, hardware is hard. 
uh, is really like that probably needs funding even more than software. But at some point, there's an inflection point where you need to say, I can be this successful. And that's another saying they have in venture capital. They ask you, would you rather have a slice of watermelon or a single grape? I haven't heard okay, that things. one yet. <laughs> yeah. And, and it makes sense, but you still have to grow that company to the size of a watermelon to get a slice. Whereas, you know, that grape might be the better thing for you. This was my first foray into this part of the world. I still would rather bootstrap everything all the time because I feel completely Number one, I feel independent in this decision-making, which is really good for me because I like to move really fast. But number two, fundraising is a job in and of itself. And I'm a very, very hands-on CEO. Like I literally get involved in every aspect of the company, not to micromanage, but so that strategically I understand everything. I spend time with our people all day and fundraising takes you out of that and puts you in the room with different people. and. They have a hard job. VCs do. Those returns are not normal. Their stories are not normal, but that's not who I wanted to spend my time with. I wanted to spend my time with this phenomenal team of people. People like me. Exactly. I did want to spend my time with people like you. So my job is to enable the best team in the world to do their best work. My second job is to tell the world that they did it. And you enable me to tell our story. You enable me to highlight these phenomenal people. And despite talking about myself, talk about the fact that they have built this thing that is profoundly capable of impacting the global carbon footprint. So you have a serious job. Like this is really good work and I'm obliged. Thank you. You're using all these big words around me. I have to like Google them after you're done every time. You stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate, like I said, you kind of given a rundown on your whole company today, but it seems like you've got a checkered history as far as business. A checkered past. Yes. And what, just looking at your LinkedIn profile, it seems like you've had some different business startups and whatnot. So when do you want to jump back to your story and see how you even got started to be an entrepreneur? So let's go way back in the Wayback Machine. Uh, so my first foray into entrepreneurship, uh, I'd been babysitting, right? Now, when you babysit, it's one person doing one job and they get paid one time. <laughs> it wasn't super attractive to me. I didn't consider it a business at the time. I just a little group of friends called At Your Service. And I found my first business card. And it has a, do you want to hear a little poem? <laughs> it says, places to go, somewhere to be, or stay right at home and leave tacky chores to me. Customer service guaranteed. I'm at your service. I'm Felicity. So uh, yeah, that was my business card when I was 12. Um, and I used that to get work for me and all my friends. And they had to give me a little bit of theirs when I got them a job. Damn, you were hustling at 12 years old? Oh, yeah. Uh, and we did lawn mowing. And it's funny that I talked about a lawn company randomly. I know. I was like, no, that's <laughs> a good company. <laughs> you could bootstrap that one. I mean, if you wanted to take your landscaping company national and you had a really good model, maybe that's a good opportunity to pull in some investment and move forward faster. There are times where service companies can use that boost. I just, I'm super careful with uh, outside resources, but yeah, no, that was um, the beginning and I loved it. I loved the marketing part of it. I loved telling the story and selling the services and doing the stuff like actually babysitting, eh, actually mowing the lawns, mm, but enabling others who didn't necessarily want to write catchy ditties to put onto business cards. 
you know, back then you had to print them for like 10 cents each at Kinko's. So seriously, I was a investment (laughs) babysitting money, but it was a lot of fun. And I certainly got the bug in that moment to enable others also. And where did you grow up and did you have any siblings? Yeah, I grew up in Oklahoma and lived in, I think, 21 states by the time I turned 21. So started moving on my own at 16 and hit quite a few states on my own, landed on the East Coast. So yeah, before I even talk about that, we (laughs) want to know why that occurred. (laughs) Yeah. So God love my mom and dad. They were super young. So like 16. They were 16 when they had you? Yeah. Both of them? That's what you did in Oklahoma. My dad was a little bit older than my mom. You know, he wanted to travel the world and she just, frankly, she wanted to be a mom. And so he got a job as a union carpenter, came up through an apprenticeship. When you're that young and you get married because of me, I mean, I think that's a great reason to do anything, me, but <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, you know, that's, that's destined for challenge. And they divorced when I was two. My dad was a union carpenter. He went where the work was. So for one summer, I lived in Alaska because the only work was in the Aleutian Islands. And that's where he went to work to provide for us. So they went, each of them went their separate ways. And both of them were a little bit gypsy-like in that they were willing to travel. So I'd spend months with my mom and then months with my dad, wherever they happened to be, Texas, California, Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, Alaska, not a lot of time on the East Coast until I was on my own which I fell in love with immediately, but it was a really unique upbringing. And I can't say that I regret it. I can reflect a lot on it, but it certainly opened my eyes to the differences in spaces. Did you have any brothers and sisters? I did, but they were halvesies. So I'd see half of them half the time and the other half, the other half of the time. I was fortunately at age 16, the oldest. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm looking at Lucian Island. So I guess if everyone, anyone's picturing Alaska as kind of the bottom left corner of the chain of islands kind of there. Yeah. Really difficult to get to. Yeah. It looks like it. But you said he was a union carpenter. So did this company just have jobs all across the U.S.? Because I feel like if you're a carpenter, you can even be in a one city in Oklahoma and still have enough money. But it seemed like, did he get paid more to do these specific jobs or something? He did, but we had, um, so there was a savings and loan bust in the eighties in Oklahoma and that nothing like the oil and gas industry fell out, everything. I was, so I was seven when we went to Alaska, there was no construction happening in the U S to speak of. And they offered him a really good deal to go out there. It's kind of like, do you remember those? Well, you're not old enough for this, but they used to put literal ads in newspapers for people to go to Alaska and work on the fishing boats for a summer. And they would pay you like ridiculous sums of money to go and do this job. But only like six people ever got selected because they're really looking for brawlers, right? Like it's the deadliest catch. And so what's a newspaper, right? I know that's real. I just told everybody how old I was without necessarily intending to do it. I'm 700. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say the great catch. What what is that TV show? Everything everyone knows about that. Yeah. It's like the deadliest catch. And they send these mostly dudes out on boats into these terrible, terrible waters to pull fish in. And they used to put an ad, let's just say like Craigslist on paper. (laughs) So so they used to be, I don't know, what's Craigslist? What's paper? (laughs) Right? This is all too real, too real. And so they would hire these people from the middle of the country to go out to Alaska for a summer 
to do this work because it's so hard. This was kind of the same thing. Everybody was hurting for work, but my dad was willing to drive seven days to Alaska to go and make this much, much needed money to stay afloat. Back in the day when you were a union carpenter, you bought a house, you had a mortgage. It was a living wage at the time until the bottom fell out of the market. So would you spend like the summers with your dad and like switch back and forth between your mom and dad or? Yep. Okay. That's how it would work. Yeah, that's how it would work. My, I would stay with my mom during the school year and my dad in the summer, and they would both be in different places. Like they would take their quote unquote time off from me to make their next move. And so some summers I would live in two or three different States. And I loved that. I mean, it was summer. But, you know, it started getting old that about the age you want to go to the mall. What's a mall? (laughs) It's about the age that you would go and like hang out with your friends and, you know, maintain your connections over the summer. It got a little old. I remember um, my dad had saved up money for the entire year to take us for a full summer to go backpacking in the mountains of Montana and live off the land, like literally fish or don't eat. And um, I knew I was so disappointed you know, because I'm 13 and I just want to hang out with my girlfriends. And that did not happen that summer, you know, but looking back, I'm like, oh my God, I lived for three months in the mountains of Montana, eating fish, like rainbow trout out of crystalline waters. What's wrong with me? (laughs) But at the time, you know, when you're 13, everything that you do and don't do matters. That's what I was going to ask. That would be the hardest part, like making friends, especially like, I guess that's probably the age I guess anyone should even think about because maybe they don't even think of, I mean, you're, like you said, your parents are pretty freaking young. So they're like, this will be a cool experience. But I mean, your dad's never been a girl and me not even being a girl is like when you're younger over the, I'd say those are the years that it starts mattering. Maybe when you're up till 10, you still want to hang out with your friends. But I feel like maybe that like you're 12, 13 to, I don't know, being 18 seems like those summers you want to hang out with your friends. And it seemed like it'd be very hard for you to do that if you kept moving everywhere. At the time, I realized I went to three schools in one year once, uh, fifth grade. So pretty young, but still in fifth grade, I had this realization. The first beginning of the school year, it was in the school I'd been the year before. Then in the middle, I moved out to really, really, really the country. Like it was a K through 12 school. By the way, those should not exist. That is really crazy. And coming from an elementary school to a K through 12, you're exposed to everything that 12th graders do as let's say a first grader because kindergarten is half day. So you might just get half of it. That was insane to me. And I was actively acknowledging in the moment that this was crazy. And then back to a more traditional education in an elementary school that for the last half of the year. But I realized that every single one of those opportunities, nobody had any idea who I was or what I'd gone through or that I lived in all these places, nothing, literally nothing, nothing. And every single time you step into those moments, you have the opportunity to present your best self, not fake it, but what did you not love about you moments ago that nobody knows? Like it could be as simple as maybe you weren't the best mathematician and you're really going to focus on your math skills, you know, something fifth grady. But if you think about that, we're really given those opportunities often in life to really stop, adjust, and then take it up a notch. And so fifth grade, there's really an opportunity here. I don't want to say reinvention. It was more like evolution. I liked that. That kind of grew on me. Energetic Austin here. And in the competitive world of advertising, marketers are always looking for an edge to accelerate their growth, reach new customers, and get measurable results. Today, they're turning to the best kept secret in marketing, 
direct mail reinvented for the digital world by Posty. Posty has transformed direct mail by adding all the digital marketing capabilities found in channels like Facebook, Google, and YouTube. The Posty platform is simple and easy. The demo they gave me just showed how awesome the creative is and can be for your business as well. See, Posty allows you to run direct mail like a digital marketer. Posty's platform is a one-stop shop that does it all for you. Build audiences, set up campaigns with A-B tests, approve creative and track results in real time. Think of it as your direct mail easy button. Posty integrates with your CRM, accesses data sets, and builds lookalike models from over 250 million U.S. consumers. With Posty, you narrow in on your target audience and reach customers that you don't find through other channels. Unlike the old way of doing direct mail, Posty is fast. Fully automated printing and logistics solutions allow you to deploy campaigns in days, not months. Posty campaigns allow you to attract new customers, retarget your website visitors, and re-engage your existing customers to increase lifetime value. Diversify your marketing and stand out with direct mail from Posty. Hurry and get your free Posty demo today by visiting posty.com slash millionaire. That's posty.com slash millionaire for a free Posty demo. Posty, direct mail reinvented for the digital world. And so up till 18, did you end up doing well in high school and graduate and just go to college? Did everything end up being normal other than obviously you moving around a lot? Nope. <laughs> no such luck. So what happened? So when I turned uh, 16, both my mom and my dad had life crises. And I honestly, you know, looking back, if you handed me my own daughter when I was 16, as opposed to when I was 28, I would have so much more challenged than either of my parents who really said, okay, we're going to give this our best shot. They both did. That's what my ex-wife said, by the way. So what really? No, I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it your best shot. Yeah, you did. You did what you could. Yeah. Uh, they did. They tried really hard and looking, you know, as a parent now I can look back and say, it's so obvious that they were in an impossible situation. But by the time I hit 16, both of them were having truly like both of them were in marriages that were struggling to survive. And uh, frankly, I bowed out, you know, there's plenty of drama to the story, but I just said, you know what? My grades were starting to drop. I was a very focused academic. I did stuff like all the things, band, show choir. Like I lived for school. I loved it. And so I was really like their problems became my problems in ways that were manifesting themselves very, very badly in my life. And I said, you know what? I talked to my dad and he's the one I was supposed to go to at this moment. Like I was leaving my mom's going to my dad's. And um, he said, I don't know if you should come here. And I'm like, dude, I'm 16. <laughs> like, what, what am I supposed to do? And he said, really think about what your options are right now. And my mom was like, no, I got to move. I'm doing my next thing. I got my own stuff to deal with right now. And, you know, I, I joke, I'm sure neither one of them appreciates this, but I joke, remember those lifetime movies where like, there's this adorable kid and both the parents fight for it, like in court, like I'm the polar opposite. <laughs> like I was not that adorable apparently. And um, just had this moment where I just realized that the best person to take care of me, weirdly, was going to be me. And I was managing a movie theater. And I'll tell you what, minimum wage at the time, again, I'm telling everybody how old I am. So I was making 385 or 350 an hour at a movie theater. 
And my rent, my half of rent. So I decided to move out, got a roommate, became my best friend of 30 years and paid $112.50 a month in rent. And that was a really hard thing to do. You've got a good memory. And speaking of which, though, you said you're going to give us a drama filled version. People are here for the drama. They want the drama. (laughs) Is there any extra drama we should know about? You know, when you get married at 16, you don't necessarily stop believing in the institution of marriage. And so you go again and maybe you go again and sometimes you go again, again. And so when I think about how many times I've been married and divorced vicariously through others immediately uh, tangential to me, my parents, uh, I have a long, long track record now of of marriage and divorce. It's really, you know, you don't stop believing. Yeah, I said that Um, you don't stop believing in these institutions that you grew up believing were the only path forward. And that led to a lot of step parents. And I'll tell you one thing, the only thing harder than parenting your own children apparently is parenting someone else's. And I will hear, I'll pull this back to business for us as an analogy. The only thing harder than being an entrepreneur and starting your own company is how I met my co-founder is stepping into the role to manage someone else's company. So that's how my co-founder and I met. He asked me to be the CEO of his decade old company at the time. And when I took that task on, I kind of looked back at my life and said, my step-parents, they did the best they could. (laughs) So, Well, we don't care about you finding your co-founder yet. We we want to hear what's happened after you got out 16. So you didn't meet your co-founder at 16 or 17, did you? No, no, no. (laughs) I was... uh... So tell us how you survived, like all the way getting to 18 years old, because I jumped along that far to see if you graduated. Sorry. Yeah. 16 to 18. I was correct in that the best person to take care of me was me. Uh, Pulled my grades right back up to straight A's. Had uh, early acceptance to Pepperdine, which I declined, which was dumb. That's my only regret, I think. (laughs) That's your only regret in life. (laughs) Did not not go into that university. I didn't understand it was in Malibu. Like I didn't have any money to do touring colleges. That wasn't a thing. Like I applied, got early acceptance. And by the way, were you in Oklahoma still at this point in time? Yeah. So I was back in Oklahoma. So I'd moved Texas. Where was I last? Montana. Yeah. So I'd moved back to Oklahoma. Both of my parents ended up back in Oklahoma when this decision that I would be better off on my own was made. And again, legitimate decision-making on all of our parts. So from Montana to Oklahoma and Actually, I think my mom was in California, but moved back to Oklahoma shortly thereafter. So we were dispersed and Oklahoma is where I had spent most of my academic time over the course of all of those years, 16 years, and where I wanted to graduate high school from because I still maintained multiple friendships there, despite the fact that there was no internet yet. I'm kidding. There was just not very much Uh, AOL. Nobody knows what that is either. So what did we cover today that doesn't exist anymore? Uh, Newspapers, paper, AOL. And And you rode a horse to school, I think, too. You know what? I did ride rodeo. That's real. I had a feeling. You're one of those girls. But so you're (laughs) saying Oklahoma. So was it Oklahoma City or was it some other small town that you actually grew up and graduated from? Yeah. So Edmond, just north of Oklahoma City. So not far. And um Certainly not as cosmopolitan, I think, as Oklahoma City. It was uh, definitely suburbia. Yeah, I'm looking at about 100,000 people today. So, 
Oh, it's huge today. Oh, it is just north. It's basically Oklahoma City. I mean, right outside Oklahoma City, right? Yeah, but there was only one McDonald's in town when I was growing up, and now there are like 12. How did you survive? I know, I know, right? We weren't. I wasn't even allowed to go to McDonald's. Are you kidding? The first picture of Edmond, Oklahoma, when you click on it, is the community pool, which is pretty funny. I don't know. I, I just haven't seen a community pool forever. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. That's a great representation of Edmond, Oklahoma. That's a good pool. Is that where you picked up your boys? <laughs> yes, that's it right there. So you eventually graduate. You turn down Pepperdine, which is in California, which if you would have known it was in California, you would not have. No, I knew it was in California. I'd spent plenty of time with my mom in California, but I didn't understand Malibu as a concept. Oh, my, my. Of physical geography in the world, it is unlike anything else. It is absolutely phenomenally gorgeous. I mean, it's on the coast, literally on the water. Like, what was I thinking? <laughs> what was I? I still, and I also didn't understand social capital. Listen, they gave me a pretty good scholarship, but I also didn't understand how to leverage debt. That is very real. Like I'm talking to young people today who are considering colleges. Like I have children who go to college and I have children who probably prefer not to. Sorry, kids. But when I look at college today with kids, I explain to them the social value and the social capital of networking in elite spaces. I had nobody to talk to me about that. I had nobody to say to me, listen, Yes, you're going to have this much debt. And I know that that feels like a car to you. And frankly, all of my cars were $500 until like two years ago. So I know it feels like 20 cars to you and that that equivalent doesn't work in your head as valuable, but there's a value here. You're not anticipating, you're not seeing, and you're not understanding when you graduate from Pepperdine, these are the doors that open to you. When you graduate from a Stanford, a Harvard, something Ivy or close to it, Penn, Wharton, that creates an opportunity for you that you don't get in places that don't have those reputations. It still worked out for you though. I'm not complaining, but <laughs> I, listen, if you're looking at one regret, I do though, but here's the thing. You could go back. Why don't you go back now? Oh no, God, no. I can barely have a boss now. Can you imagine me with a professor? I don't know. <laughs> oh, it seems like you're fantasizing about this coastline. It sounds like you might be able to buy your own house in Malibu now. I can't even move to the West Coast now. I'm so East Coast. I'm the most East Coast person I know. I think you're just fantasizing about this Pepperdine. I, th I think you still worked it out. <laughs> so what do you go to Oklahoma City Community College or something instead? No, I went to six different universities. You get around, don't you? I do. Well, you know that gypsy spirit is in me. Apparently. I come by it honestly. So I went to University of Redlands, which is still in California. But it's in San Bernardino. And I really apologize to any of your audience who lives in San Bernardino today. But I didn't understand that there were mountains surrounding my university for the first three months because of the smog. Oh, my gosh. San Bernardino. To, I'm just looking. <laughs> so everyone knows. What is it like an hour away from Pepperdine? Hour and a half? Yes. But an hour on 10 is like seven hours. And you have to remember, I'm driving $500 cars that I rebuild myself. So at this point in time, I had a 69 Volkswagen Squareback with a flat four-cylinder pancake engine that I had to rebuild every time I drove it. Like if I wanted to go to the grocery store, I had to get spark plugs. That's true. University of Redland looks pretty beautiful too. Is it not? I mean, listen, you take the photograph on the right day. So does a, a stuffed pig. So do I. Yeah, you're right. 
<laughs> me too. Me too. Go yeah, look at my headshots. Like that's clearly professional. You're kind of right. I think I just saw yeah. one good picture, two, maybe two good pictures. I, I kept scrolling it and then I took that backwards. <laughs> Listen, the school itself is, it was great. Great people. Just not what I was expecting. I moved back to the East coast after that. So what were you expecting? What did you get? Honestly, I was expecting really aggressive environmentalists, like activists. Is that what you were at the time too? You know, I was definitely bent towards environmental activism. I was working really hard to figure out how to have the most impact with, well, frankly, this level of energy, this is normal. And so like, I have a passion, I have a drive and I want to deliver that to the right thing. And to me, that was environmentalism. So were you chaining yourself up to trees and stuff? You know, hugging some trees. I was looking for something a little more intellectual as a path forward. Sorry, Redland University. <laughs> but here's what I found is that a lot of people in California just like to smoke up. And my entire class really preferred like smoking to working. And I was the most annoying human being in the world to them because I was like, okay, okay, are you done? Now can we get to work? And they're like, no, now we're going to get some Cheetos. And I'm like, oh, no. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely built for the East Coast. Then you decided you wanted to go to like five more universities. Is that what happened next? That's what I did. So here's what I did. So I knew I had to get to the East Coast. I determined that the West Coast was not my coast. I'm going to try the East Coast and see if the pace is more suited to my energy, if you will. I head back East. I'm going to go back to the East Coast. By the way, I've now switched from a 69 Volkswagen Squareback to an 85 Volkswagen Vanagon. So don't know what that means, but they cost $500 each. So that's what we're in now. So I'm driving with all of my stuff back across the country and the van breaks down for better or for worse, pretty much outside of Edmond, like close enough that I can call some friends for help to get me into Edmond. So here I am again in Edmond, only one year of college under my belt, and I got to fix this van. And it's not just a spark plug. It's not stuff I can fix. I think I drove the shifter through the gearbox. <laughs> like, like I, we got to do some welding now, and that's just a little bit beyond my skills. So I will tell all entrepreneurs this. If you have black pants and white shirts, you can wait tables almost anywhere and get tips. And that was super valuable to me at the time. So I started waiting tables for the first time just to get enough cash together to get myself out of Edmond. Like I'm sleeping on people's couches. I'm sleeping in a van, no rivers. So not down by the river, but so close to it, right? Yeah, you're back where you're born. I'm stuck and I'm stuck in Oklahoma. Right, right. Now there's good news and bad news there. All my friends, some of my family, like I have people to back me up and help me, but it takes time. You know, it takes time to fix the Volkswagen van. So I figure since I'm going to be here for a semester, which turned into four semesters, I might as well enroll in school. And so I did. So start, you know, chipping away at that degree that I believe in my heart of hearts is the only way to move forward in life at the ripe old age of now 19. So enroll in the University of Oklahoma, any, any place, wherever I break down, I enroll truly in whatever university classes I can until I get the car fixed and drive again all the way to the East Coast. True story. And then where do you go on the East Coast? So started at Essex Community College because I couldn't afford tuition anyplace else. God love him. No one knows where that is. So where's that located? <laughs> it's in Maryland. Essex Community College is in Maryland, outside of Baltimore. E-S-S-E-X? Yes. Okay. I took some really hard classes there with some pharmacy students who really impacted my perspective. Like I felt a little bad. Now, 
I think everybody should understand community college. You can have the best professor of your life at a community college. Absolutely 100% valid. I had professor after professor who actually cared about me. And at a community college, the students who are there are there because that's typically their only option. And they're working twice as hard as any of the other students I'd met at that point, because that investment that they're making, that $99 a credit hour, is all of their money and all of their hope. So I am the biggest proponent of community college colleges you'll ever meet. Plus, you get two years, and most community colleges have a program that ties into a university where you get a 100% transfer into a degree program for that investment that you made in yourself. And it often comes with scholarships. So that's what I did. You know, I looked at this and I was like, I can't afford $1,200 a credit hour at any of the major universities in Maryland. I can't afford that. And again, I didn't understand the value of debt associated with university. Like that didn't occur to me. You can't have debt from Oklahoma in that time period. Like it was, it would forever ruin you. Uh, so really, you know, you, you grow up at, in the time and the place where I grew up and you develop some thinking that doesn't necessarily serve you long-term. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and I certainly had, so I didn't take out any student loans. I paid for every class as I took it. And that meant sometimes I just took one class. Well, so far you sound smart for doing that to me. It certainly worked, but it took me six years instead of four. And I, I don't know. I think for me that I needed that. I was also moving and transferring all of these credits. By the way, that's a nightmare. Transferring five universities of credits into the six. I can't recommend that. Okay. So what was the university you eventually got into? Yeah, no, Towson. Towson University, same place that Eileen on Seinfeld graduated from. Also now with Seinfeld. I hope you have some aged people in your audience because everybody else is going to be like, I have no idea what she said. My grandma listens to it. So maybe she may understand what you're talking about. Okay, good. Whew, we're going to be fine. If she wants to reminisce about Seinfeld, just have her call me. Gotcha. So Townsend, Towson. Yeah, T-O-W-S-O-N. You found it. Is it prettier than your other school? It was right in the middle of a town. So that's where I got my degree. And how old were you? Uh, let's see, uh, 24. So we've gotten all the way up to 24. You're 24 in Maryland. I know, I'm ancient now. And what did you graduate with? So I graduated with a interdisciplinary degree in biology, psychology, philosophy, and women's studies. No wonder why it took six years to graduate. It really did. Like I kept going at one point. I had a professor of psychology who asked me if I was perhaps interested in going on to the next level of school, which would be a master's degree. And I said, no, but I was interested in medical school, like medical psychiatry. And so I began the path. I started taking the courses to qualify to apply to medical school. And I found out that I literally pass out if you say the word N-E-E-D-L-E. I'm just kidding. Needle. But I, I'm really so bad that I, I pass out. I don't feel kind of woozy. I just fall over like those fainting goats. I'm the fainting goats of attempted medical school. That's what I am. So I couldn't go to medical school. Here's the good news. I had been waiting tables when I started in Maryland. I would open outback steakhouses. So my waiting tables career evolved beautifully, I might add, uh, into, because I really did the theory of the Outback Steakhouse at the time. 
was pretty profound. You couldn't really, as a middle-class person, go to a steakhouse. Like you're not going to go to Fleming's or Del Frisco's. Like Outback had a great theme going and they would hire a team to go and open Outback steakhouses to maintain the theme and the rules. They had like no rules, just right. And all of these philosophies around restaurant management, the proprietors of each Outback was an investor in the Outback. So they had real skin in the game. It wasn't a franchise model in the traditional sense. It was a little bit different. Can you tell us the difference between that? Because I thought you were just talking about franchisees, but you're saying it's different. I guess it would depend on the franchise model, but they're an owner with the Outback. So they make a significant financial investment and then they actually run the restaurant as well. But Outback maintains a stake in that also. And I think probably has first buyout rights, uh, if I recall correctly. Keeping in mind, I was on the waitress opening team, not the uh, business team. But it fascinated me because in the restaurants at which I'd worked, the owner never worked there. It was just a manager, right? And that person didn't really care. And it showed in a lot of the restaurants I worked at, not naming names. But here, this proprietor would be on site and dedicated to the success of this team and this opening and this theme. And they were really like, they were their own business owners. And it was a hugely different behavior than I'd seen in other restaurants. So uh, happily began opening those restaurants um, while I was going to school. But I started looking for more traditional jobs while I was in college, something I could do in the evenings, but still more business oriented than waiting tables. But waiting tables pays a lot of money cash and it's hard to compete. But I did find, of all things, a telemarketing job. And I did telemarket for three whole days before I ran as fast as I could away (laughs) from the business. And I started working with an attorney who had utilized the telemarketing services there. And I began marketing his law firm and marketing law firms is hard. They have a lot of rules, uh, ethics requirements, et cetera, but started marketing his law firm as my own company, a marketing firm for real estate. And that's how I got involved in real estate. And that was while I was waiting tables, going to school, three days of telemarketing, and then starting what became a fairly significant business, real estate business. I really signed on for the contact details for your guests. That's probably the first time I've seen people willing to give away information. They're just so helpful. Yeah, and for the second part of the pool episode. Okay, what do you think about the pool episode? Yeah, really good. Are there some interviews that went bad too that people like on the Patreon feed? Yes, I saw the one with the author. Yeah, oh, <laughs> did, you, did you listen to it? Yeah, he was a weirdo. Oh, I appreciate you becoming a Patreon. Yeah, absolutely, man. I've been listening to your stuff. And mostly it was really just to provide a little support. And I think I'll probably go up to the next level next year because I think it's worthwhile to help support you for all the work you put in. But now that I can get down there and listen to the second parts and the calls with people, I think that's really important too. So the law firm that you were marketing, it only worked in real estate? That law firm specialized in real estate, you're saying? Yes, definitely focused on transactional real estate. Some other stuff came through from time to time, but really it was focused. And what year? I know you're 24 at this point. Yeah. So now we're in 1995. So I still don't have my degree. I'm still going to school now. Also still waiting tables, opening restaurants, and also running a marketing firm. And then what happens from there? So first thing that falls is waiting tables. Uh, My ability to maintain the appropriate level of patience necessary to serve as a waitress, it fell off pretty quick. 
Um, then I got my degree and was just doing marketing. And so I was watching for whether there were opportunities in marketing to expand my firm, the marketing firm to other things outside of real estate. And I answered an ad in the paper. <laughs> See, these things were very valuable, truly. I answered an ad in the paper for a campaign manager for a freshman delegate in Maryland and drove my Volkswagen van, still going in the van. So good on her. Uh, drove my Volkswagen van, no AC, out 90 minutes to more rural Maryland than Baltimore and met with a freshman delegate. And she was looking for a campaign manager and I was right up my alley. Like everything she needed was the same stuff I was doing for real estate. So marketing really is my favorite part of business because I consider it the strategy, like all of the information you need to tell your story and deliver really in my head stems from that research that you do for your marketing. And so I understood that she needed marketing. And she understood that I was willing to work for free. And so we had a, we had a great campaign. She was successful. We were successful. Uh, and then she asked me, she said, what are you going to do for, you know, the rest of your life? And I was like, I'm going to run my marketing company. And she's like, it's a great company, but you clearly had time to run my campaign and do your job. So I think you probably have time to go to law school. And I said, well, that's crazy. If needles make me pass out, just think of what lawyers are going to do. I, so she convinced me. She's like, you really should, you should consider law school. She said, you'll academically, you're geared towards it. And from a woman in politics, I can tell you there will be far less valuable things you do in your life than spend three years doing this and introduced me to the university of Maryland, which was her alma mater. And dang, if I didn't actually just fall in love. So that's what I was looking at. So 1999, you're 28 years old and you go to university of Maryland to be a lawyer. Yeah. And have a baby and get married. It was a big year. Okay. So how about this? How about we pause there, if you don't mind, and kind of do a second part of this story? Because I don't think we've even gotten to the crucial business stuff. I mean, we talked about starting your first marketing company, but I think this would be kind of a good stopping point to reflect on what happened in 99. You actually going to you know be a lawyer because looking at your checker past, you hadn't even talked about law school. And I'm like, wait, she's a lawyer too? Right? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So um, would you be okay doing a part two here? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, we'll pick it up here, I guess, if you don't mind on the second part for Patreon members. And I guess before we close out this interview, I don't know if you have any last words of wisdom. So if anyone's pausing now that they could reflect on your story up to this point, but any words of wisdom for any of the entrepreneurs out there? Yeah. So I live by a motto, a personal motto, and it's that action alleviates anxiety. So there's a lot to be trepidatious about right now. The economy, political administrations, the climate change, everything can be stressful right now. And what I tell my own children and those that I mentor, act, act, find some way to deliver your talents and your skills, whether it's volunteering or whether it's in the marketplace, traditionally action alleviates anxiety. So all of the pain and all of the fear that the world is somewhat chock full of right now, you can alleviate your own anxiety by just delivering your talents and skills. So just start doing whatever you're thinking about instead of just sitting there worrying about it. Is that kind of summarizes? Yeah. Worry isn't work. Worry is a waste. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. 
I really never worry about anything, but I will say like, there's a lot of people, like, even if I'm thinking about doing a project or whatever, all the time that you spend thinking about doing it, if you just do it, you'd have been done in probably 25% of the time of all the time you worried about thinking about doing something. That's real. I'm like the anti-procrastinator. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great wisdom. So thank you for giving us part one of your interview here. And I guess if anyone wanted to reach out now and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah. Felicity at FelicityMormon.com. Shoot me an email. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Felicity. Always a pleasure. Hey guys, Energetic Austin here. I hope you enjoyed that interview. The second part of the interview is actually available right now for all our Patreon members. Here's a preview of it. I have this game I play at the airport with any of my friends that I travel with regularly or coworkers. Wait, and I you go into stalls and then you take your foot and try to hit the neighbor's foot? <laughs> no, I say beep at a relatively normal level, like um, beep like that. And the other person has to respond at least some louder with boop. Oh, well, actually, I yeah, I, I did this in high school and middle school, except we used the word penis instead. <laughs> well, that's a good one. Now, as in, there's way more consequences, so it kept going louder there, and louder. There are. And louder. <laughs> well, you would be surprised how few adults are willing to beat boop through an airport. So become a Patreon member to get part two right now. And by the way, become a Patreon member to get part two right now. And by the way, become a Patreon member to get part two right now. Right now. Right now.